sharp, pointed, and insightful. This is Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. The mother of all rallies tonight inside of the Amway Center. 45 Fest begins. The doors don't open until 5 o'clock, but there are already hundreds upon hundreds of people queued up waiting to get in, many of whom camped out in their tents on the sidewalks around the Amway Center overnight. I feel it's important for us to give back and support him because he's there to support us. We're here to support Trump. We love our president. Support the greatest president of all time. He's going to be uplifting to us and you know we all anticipate that he will be announcing officially his run for 2020. Four more years! And now, Stacey Washington. Four more years! Oh yeah. Yeah, four more years. We'll see what happens, won't we? (laughs) But the campaign announcement is coming and it is pretty exciting to see the level of just people are just losing it. They're just happy to be there. And uh, it's, I think it's fun. I think it's it's nice to see. Um, so it, in in the interest of go to the order, let's. Um, well, first of all, we do have uh, one more. We're going to go to audio cut one here in just a minute. Um, and we're going to have Blair Ellis, RNC National Press Secretary. She's going to call in. But right now, um, we, Justice Thomas talking about. Um, actually asking the Supreme Court to overturn demonstrably erroneous decisions. So we're going to discuss that. What we'll do is first call lines are open 866-963-2037, 866-963-2037. You can call in and join the show. Um, we will be chatting with Blair next segment. I want to get into this audio by Art Del Cueto. He's a vice president of National Border Patrol Council, ripping into Ocasio-Cortez over her concentration camp remarks and then I want to launch into her, uh, also her poll numbers. Her approval rating in her own district is actually down because people there aren't getting what they were promised from her. So here is this uh, sound bite in number one. I haven't seen her down here in Arizona, I can tell you that. And when any individual makes that reference, uh, it just it loses all the interest in me. It's disgusting to compare uh, concentration camps to what the men and women are doing here protecting our country. Uh, I mean, you, I, in my eyes, honestly, you lose credibility. I've had it, you know, up to here with all these individuals constantly trying to compare concentration camps to what we're doing. I was just at one of the detention facilities. The kids were outside their cell because we have so many of them. They were out on the floor playing puzzles. They were watching movies, uh, eating cookies and, and what have you. Uh, and she needs to come down here. I think it's disgusting to compare uh, what the men and women do out in, in the border right now to that. And it is definitely a slap in the face to a lot of these individuals that have family members that actually went through concentration camps. I've said it many times. Some of these people need to crack open a history book before they make some comments. He's so dead on. I mean, come on. Like, how can she, you know, never again. So why doesn't she say that to Mexico? Or any of the countries south of the border that are sending these people. She should be down there telling them, never again. Never again. You can't send people up here, 7000 bucks a pop. You know, they're paying to be smuggled into America. They just found 800 illegal aliens in the back of a truck crammed in. I mean, you, these, these conditions are, they're not just deplorable. They're, and the diseases that the Border Patrol agents are now coming down with, they're getting sick in droves. Because they're not, they're, not, they're not vaccinated for these diseases. These are diseases we haven't faced in this country. We don't know what they're dealing with. We don't know what they're sick with. And they're taking this stuff home to their families. But, you know, 
by all means, let's talk about this from the perspective of the people who are coming here because they're the only ones that matter, right? The Border Patrol guys, they don't matter. Their family members, they don't matter. American citizens who've lost their children, spouses, loved ones to illegal alien crime, they don't matter. The only people that matter are the ones who are coming here illegally and how they need someplace to work. I'm so sick of hearing that from American citizens. Like, if you have that much love for people from other countries, why don't you go live down there and take all of your well-meaning, you know, you you just got so much um, philanthropy in your heart. You have so much giving. You're just so charitable. Take your charitable self and all of your assets down there to one of these countries and start making a difference. Instead of sitting up here in posh America with your feet up, tweeting or making comments on YouTube about how it's, it, they're, these people, these are good. Okay, if they're so good, why don't you go down there and live with them? Why don't you take 10 or 20 of them into your home? You like paying higher taxes? You're so progressive. You're so much better than the rest of us. The rest of us are xenophobes and we hate everybody and we're scared. But you're brave and you have a lot to give and you're just loving and you're open and you want to bring some people in. So bring them in. Put your money where your mouth is or shut up, you know, just let the rest of us do what we do and have our thoughts and our processes without the sound of your voice or the, having to read your comments and your tweets you know, you're wishy-washy. You don't do anything. You just do a whole lot of talking about how, well, I just feel like what we should do is accept everyone. Well, won't you accept a whole bunch of everyone into your place? Bring them into your home. Put these people with these diseases we don't know and have them vaccinated against in bedrooms with your kids. Let them go to your kid's school. You be responsible for bringing them up to snuff and assimilating them into America. Oh, I'm sorry. What do I hear? Silence. Whenever you say put your money where your mouth is, bleeding heart liberals, their little lips go together. And they press their lips together really tight and then they stick their finger in your face and say, well, you and start name calling. I've already been called all the names and I'm I'm bored with you. I'm bored with your constant lack of ability to put your money where your mouth is. So apparently AOC is not putting it down in her home district. So the group that commissioned the poll because full disclosure here, I don't have to paper over the results for you like the mainstream media does. I think it's much more interesting if we tell the truth about what this story is about. The story is that there's a group called Stop the AOC Pack. They're not a fan of AOC. And they've commissioned a poll. And they've already fined, uh, or filed, they've filed an FEC complaint against AOC already. So they're already in mobilization mode to get her out of their district. They don't want her. Now, the pollster is called Mobilize the Message, and they found some shocking results, including a very low 21% approval rating. Now, I'll say the same thing about this poll that I say about the polls about President Trump. The proof is in the pudding, and you take it with a grain of salt. It could be dead-on accurate. It could be partially accurate. It could be not even worth the paper that I printed it out on, which is coincidentally paper from Office Max. So, you know, it's, it's not expensive paper. Um, so the D.C. examiner examined their findings and came up with the following uh, analysis. 42% of the people in the district are unfamiliar with AOC. 51% have an unfavorable view of her. 33% are ready to vote against her. And only 13% answered in the poll that they would vote for her. The poll was conducted from April 29th to June 7th. And canvassers went door to door and got the, the answers live. So it wasn't a phone poll. They surveyed 2,261 homes out of 10,556 homes that they attempted to survey. 
the five questions they ask were, hi, my name is, and I'm a student activist concerned about our community. Our Congresswoman AOC was elected to represent us last year. Are you familiar with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez? Two, do you have a favorable or unfavorable opinion of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez? Three, do you support allowing businesses like Amazon to move here and hire thousands of new jobs? Coincidentally, the answer to that one was 36% said they support Amazon, 8.9% said they didn't, and 55% said they were unsure. Do you believe politicians like AOC had our community's best interest in mind when they forced Amazon out of Queens? 32% said no, 56% were unsure. These are the people who have to be told what to think by CNN, probably. Will you pledge to oppose AOC's, uh, will you pledge to oppose AOC in our next election? Yes, 33%, no, 13%, unsure, 53%. Out of the near 60% who are familiar with AOC, just over half of them do not like the job she's doing. This is an interesting poll. Um, I'm sure she's got somebody on her campaign who's read the story and they're pouring over the results and they're going to go after that 55% who are unsure. Um, it's just weird that that number is so high. Are these people who don't watch normal television or normal cable TV? Uh, like, what is the reason why they would be unsure at this stage of the game? She's been there for a while now. Like, she's, she's actually making her mark and she's on TV a lot. So it's hard to believe they're so unfamiliar with her. All right. Um, so... Here is former New Jersey governor Chris Christie talking about how Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez must be made to explain how she plans to pay for $15 minimum wage, tuition-free college, and universal health care. And I think this is one of his best um, like TV appearances in a while. And he's, he's usually pretty good. I mean, no joke. But this is one of the best questions I've ever heard him ask because he's actually – Speaking to the moderator of the panel that he's on, she was on earlier before he did his hit and he's live in studio and he's calling them out on the fact that they let her come on and spew all this rhetoric without asking her how, how do you pay for it? She, and she's never been made to answer. I just wonder how, what kind of a meltdown would she have if every time she came on TV and starts spouting this nonsense, people ask her just a simple question. Why? How much will it cost? What are the unintended consequences? Here he is. It's number two. Well, I listen, you know, I, I think she doesn't know how to do math. Um, that's for certain. And you, What, in terms of the calculus on impeachment? Uh, no, no, not on the calculus of impeachment, on what she was talking about at the end regarding billionaires. And, you know, she wants everybody to have all of these things. Um, but she herself has been so off on the math of what these things cost and what it would take to tax those things. And is it even possible to provide them? I mean, uh, the fact of the matter is um, she is someone who's having a great experience at the moment. And it happens a lot in American politics. But no realism attached to it. She wants she, she wants tuition-free college. She wants $15 minimum wage for everybody. She wants health care for everybody. I mean, these are all things that, that cost trillions of dollars. And she has not once expressed a mathematically feasible way to pay for them. Now, that's okay when you're campaigning for something. But now you have the office. And you have a responsibility to do it. And if you're going to have her on a show like this, she mm -hmm. should be asked about how it works. And, and she wasn't asked that this morning, John. And as long as she's not asked those questions, we're going to continue to have her moment. But at some point, you have to govern. So first of all, she's governing now. As inept as she is at it, she's governing now. She has responsibility on committees. 
she's actually been asking people questions, you know, like I've just been cringing and listening to the ways that she talked to um, people like bank executives and, and, and I'm not saying that bank executives are some kind of protected class and they can't be asked hard questions. You know, you guys know me, you've heard people come on this show and I don't care if it's, you know, I'm, I was an honor for me to get to interview Eric Trump twice and uh, Ann Coulter twice. You guys know when they come on, I, I will gush and I will be so excited to talk to them, but I will also ask them hard questions. And that is why we continue to bring on any liberals who will come, any liberals who will join us. We bring them on and we talk to them. And I know in the first year or so of the show, I was like a fire breathing dragon and I used to really get into people. But now I'm trying to get a conversation with them so I can understand not just where they're coming from, but how they think they can accomplish the things that they're promoting, whether it's supporting Joe Biden or the $15 an hour minimum wage, or yesterday we had Rita on from Convention of States, which I'm not, I'm not one of those people who supports an Article 5, but she came on and shared a lot of information. And if you're in the listing audience and this is something that you care about, you got to hear from her mouth what they're planning to do, what they hope to accomplish over at COS. So, you know, this, this isn't about shutting down conversation or keeping people from sharing their ideas. And Woe be it for me to decry someone's moment, just like I've been excited to see uh, Candace Owens and what she's been able to do speaking to groups of Americans that I'm, I'm not able to touch that for whatever reason, they don't watch my videos, but they, they watch her, they listen to her. I'm loving that. Um, I, I think it's interesting that Ocasio-Cortez has such a, a very low information base, but she's still able to get all of these TV hits. She's on the Sunday shows, for goodness sakes. You know how hard it is to get on the Sunday shows? I mean, if you think I'm crying from the back nine and I, you know, I, I don't have any reason to you know, ever expect to do something like that, I encourage you to go to StacyOnTheRight.com and read my bio. Um, you know, I, I have some accomplishments. I've been around a while. I've never been on this Sunday this week or whatever they call the, you know, the Sunday shows. I've never, never. And you know, Brian Stelter follows me on Twitter. Um, quite a few people that, you know, that they follow me on Twitter, White House correspondents, whatever. So it's not like they don't know I exist. For her to get to go on there and then not be informed and just say whatever she wants to say and not actually be made to prove anything. It's journalistic malpractice. All right, we'll be back with Blair Ellis. Stacey Washington, stay there. 80% of the time, an abortion-minded mother who views an ultrasound or sonogram of her baby will choose life. Here's the story of Candace. The sonogram sealed the deal for me. My baby was like this tiny little spectrum of hope. And I saw his heart beating on the screen. And knowing that there's life growing inside, I mean, that sonogram changed my life. I went from just Candace to mom. Thank you to everybody that has given these gifts. You guys are giving more than money. You guys are giving love. There are currently preborn centers which do not have an ultrasound machine. Would you sponsor a machine today? Dial pound 250 and say keyword baby. That's pound 250 and say baby. Or go to preborn.com. That's preborn.com. Your love could save a life. This is Viewpoints with Kirby Anderson. 
Why are suicides surging in America? There's no easy answer to that question, but there are some important clues. Some of the answers have been put forth in the latest CDC reports. We do have a number of deaths of despair that result from intended suicides as well as from opioid overdoses. And we also see suicides that have increased among our veterans that show the relationship between military combat and PTSD. But there are social, intellectual, and spiritual reasons for the increased number of suicides. In her article in Intellectual Takeout, Annie Holmquist wonders what is driving this mentality of despair. She reminds us that half the people who commit suicide do not have a known mental health condition. That is why looking at other issues is so important. She takes us back to the seminal book by University of Chicago professor Alan Bloom, The Closing of the American Mind. Even back in 1988, when the book was published, he saw a stark difference between the college students of that day and those just a few years before. They were superficial and continually indulged in cliches. They didn't reason on a deeper level and were disenchanted with the world. Believe me, if that was true of the college students in the 1980s, it is really true of the current generation of young people. They have grown up in a world of memes and cliches. They came of age in a world that long abandoned moral values. The recent discussion about D-Day and the greatest generation led many to suggest that the current generation might not be up to such challenges. Sadly, this generation is growing up without any appeal to moral and biblical values. They don't have anything to live for because they don't believe anything would be worth dying for. Suicide becomes an option when life is sterile, superficial, and soulless. I'm Kirby Anderson, and that's my point of view. For a free copy of Kirby's booklet, A Biblical View on You can download episodes of Stacy on the Right from the podcast page on AFR.net or UrbanFamilyTalk.com. Now, back to the show on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Hey there. Welcome back to the show. Stacy Washington, host of Stacy on the Right here on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. It's my pleasure to welcome our next guest, Blair Ellis, frequent guest of the program. She's the RNC National Press Secretary. Blair, thanks for joining us today. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> I'm like kind of pumped up because there's nothing better than seeing President Trump and he's got like 100,000 people who've RSVP'd for his campaign launch down in Orlando. So they're camping out in tents and they're enjoying themselves. It's like one of those things where they'll be like, remember when we camped out outside of the president's launch rally, you know, 10 years ago and we camped out and we had this much fun. Then they'll get their little pictures out and, you know, or maybe they'll have it on some digital little thing. Totally. Yeah, it, th- that's what's totally. happening. And Joe Biden, Blair, I think he had 90 people. He couldn't even crack 100. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And the chairwoman made that exact point earlier this week. I mean, the sheer size of crowds that, that Trump continues to pull out to these rallies. I, I mean, it's astounding. We're two years into this, and he's still bringing in these massive numbers to these rallies. And, and some of these newly announced Democrats or Democrats that are kind of new to the limelight could never bring these in. And, and even those who are like, you know, the Bernie Sanders, who's you know, been around for several cycles and, and have are familiar faces, they couldn't bring this, this sheer number of people, enthusiasm, and excitement that Trump continues to bring to his rallies. We've seen over 100,000 supporters registered for tickets for this relaunch today in Orlando. And to the point you made, people have been uh, camping out for the last, you know, 40-plus hours uh, leading up to this event. They've stood in the rain uh, and the heat down there. I mean, these people are pumped to see their president. And I just think that is such a testament to what we're experiencing across the country right now. Yeah, I think it's fun. I think I think it well, and it's also like 
I don't think it's a stretch, Blair, to say that if people, if 100,000 people are willing to camp out, come early, RSVP, go through what they have to go through to get in that building, get in that hangar, get, you know, get within earshot of the speakers from the podium where the president will be speaking, um, they're probably going to turn out, whether it's rainy or thunderstormy or whatever, on election day to vote for him. So this is really Mm -hmm. a precursor to a wave that will keep him in the presidency. Totally. I mean, I'm looking right now just at some footage of folks that are, you know, down in Orlando and on the ground. We've seen Kaylee McEnany. We've got several from our team as well that are there. And they posted these videos um, about, you know, the, the Trump supporters that are camping outside of the Amway Center. And, like, it's just insane to me. I mean, they've got the tent. They've got sleeping bags. They've got the chairs set up. They've got the coolers laid out. I mean, this is the, the, the type of enthusiasm that you typically don't see from people that are going into a second term. And the fact that we're still two years out, or 18 months out, I should say, from Election Day, and we're, al- and we're already and we're consistently seeing this level of enthusiasm, absolutely. I mean, I think come rain or shine on Election Day, November 2020, uh, we're going to see some, some conservatives that are really ready to cast their second ballot for President Trump. And a lot of that's just because he's a man of his word. He's made promises. He's kept promises. He's delivered consistently for the American people. And they're ready for more of that for four more years. So, Blair, I was so amused earlier uh, this morning. So I followed the president on uh, Telegram. And so I can get my notifications right off. And it's awesome. And so I saw him. He sent out a message this morning that he's going to live tweet the first Democratic debate. Now, I have done this many times before, Blair, where I live tweet. And it's so fun because the reactions, people who normally are silent on Twitter, they just read it. They tweet back during the debates because it's it's an event. It's it's like going to a game or something where you get, you know, everybody's weighing in. And so I, I, I don't mind telling you, I am so excited that he plans to live tweet it because <laughs> that is going to be I mean, it's going to be pretty epic. And all the stuff that the mainstream media would normally like they're going to make a lot of these crazy policy proposals that the Democrats are going to actually talk about, they're going to, the mainstream media is going to say, well, that sounds radical, but in all actuality, or most Americans believe they're going to lie for these people. And the president is going to tweet his reactions to what they've said straight from the Oval Office or someplace at the White House. I just can't wait to see him obliterate the mainstream media's attempt to make these crazy policies sound palatable to Americans. I absolutely agree. I think it's going to be so much fun uh, to, to watch Twitter unfold. Just generally, Twitter Twitter can be kind of a scary place, but Twitter is always a fun place, I think, on, on presidential debates uh, or leading up to big presidential debates because it's fun to kind of see um, – I mean, we're going to see liberals kind of pick their own kind apart, and I'm interested to see that happen. I'm also really excited to start seeing – some of these Democrat candidates start throwing elbows at one another. We really have yet to see that. We've seen a lot of, like, kind of holding hands, kumbaya, everybody's played really nicely. But I think when you, now that we've started to see who's pulling ahead of the pack a little bit and we've started to kind of get some sneak peeks at fundraising numbers from, de- from Democrat candidates, I think we're going to start to see who other Dem contenders are seeing as a threat. And I think that's going to become really clear uh, next week as well on both nights of those, uh, of those debates. And I also just can't wait to see how newsrooms are going to try and divide and conquer coverage in terms of who's going to be covering Trump's tweets and following Trump's tweets, and then how are they also going to keep all eyes on the candidates during the debate. Um, I think there's just going to be a lot happening next week uh, in terms of the, the Democrat debates, but I am so excited. We are, we are so thrilled here at the RNC for the experience to just kind of sit back with our popcorn and kind of watch those, uh, watch those conversations and discussions unfold. <laughs> so... <laughs> 
You bring up an interesting point, Blair, because I hadn't even thought about that. I've been thinking on two tracks. Number one, I'll be following the president's tweets and obviously I'll be live tweeting. And then the, the second track is, you know, what the media will say about what the Democratic candidates are saying. But you're saying there's another mm-hmm. there's another area that's really important. And that is what will the media's reaction be to his tweets? And they normally are very upset by his tweets. Like even when he tweets something yeah. nice, they're upset by yeah. it. So. Yeah, I mean, how many staffers will they have to each newsroom will have to have someone who's monitoring the tweets and then they'll either break in and cover them or if they refuse to cover them, that will force Americans to go to the president's Twitter feed and read them for themselves, which is an unintended like consequence for them. Right. And it's going to be fascinating to watch them, to your point. They tend to lose their minds when the president starts tweeting. And so I find it fun to watch what report, how reporters are kind of, you know, reacting to the president's kind of moment-by-moment take on Twitter. Um, but I think there's nobody better to defend the president, you know, than the president himself. And there's no one who could do it better uh, than the president himself. And I'm, I'm just interested to kind of see, um, you know, what the president himself chooses to hone in on. And, and again, what these candidates choose to hone in on. I think we've seen a lot of them kind of all embrace the same types of radical policies. You know, they've all openly embraced the Green New Deal. They've all embraced the idea of government takeover of our health care. A lot of them have embraced this idea of abolishing ICE. And I cannot wait to get on stage, to watch them get on stage and hear them defend these against, you know, one another and to each other. Um, I'm sure we're going to really hear some really tuned things. You've already heard some very far left police from a lot of these contenders, and I'm sure that having multiple of them all on the stage at one time trying to compete for the limelight and compete for attention is only going to bring out some even greater uh, remarks and some even kind of crazier one-liners from them. Okay, so let's let, let's just for a second, Blair. You're talking about the reactions to the tweets, but there's also going to be, well, so I I don't expect the moderators to ask these candidates how they expect to pay for Medicare for all or how they expect to fund. Like they'll say, well, we'll tax the wealthy. Vague vague proposals mm-hmm. that don't actually pan out. These programs, if made, you know, mandatory for everyone are not fundable through taxing the rich. We don't have enough rich people. We have the most rich people, and we don't have enough to, to do it that way. I don't expect them to ask, but maybe the, the benefit here is that the president will say they should ask them, They're, you know, because he's really good at noticing what people aren't talking about uh, while the rest of us mm-hmm. are kind of going crazy about what they are talking about. I think that's a great point, um, and I also think that we're going to start having to, to see some accountability among these Democrat contenders about who's willing to own what um, in the sense of, you know, are they willing to try and start talking about substantive policy proposals, not just their pie-in-the-sky ideas? Are they willing to start talking about how to pay for things? That tends to be a big theme with Democrats nowadays is what's lob these pie-in-the-sky proposals like the Green New Deal in the air or Medicare for All in the air or, you know, government-funded college, free tuition for everybody. And and yet there's no actual teeth for the, to these bills. There's no ways to um, to actually pay for them. And that's a, that's a big problem. Um, and so I'm looking forward to kind of seeing, you know, what is it that, um, that these Democrats themselves end up getting behind and then – to, these, uh, to the other extent, do we start seeing any accountability enforced among any of those on the stage about um, how they're going to go about implementing these policies 
Um, are we going to see any flip-flops among some of these Democrat contenders on the stage and, and, and their sudden embrace of something that maybe they've long time stood against? We've seen a lot of flip-flopping with Joe Biden in the last couple of weeks. So I think that if anyone can hold their feet to the fire, it's going to be President Trump. Um, but I'm, I'm just really kind of interested to start watching some of these discussions and debates unfold. So when you talk, Blair, about the the... It's it's really an interesting dichotomy. Some of the radical proposals that are being it's like they're racing and elbowing each other to get further to the left than Bernie Sanders. Totally. But but one of the ones that I think they've really made a, a serious misstep on is the Hyde Amendment. Most Americans, even those who support abortion, don't believe that taxpayers should be made to support it because taxpayers might not want to support abortion personally or they might have personal religious reasons for not supporting it. Like like me, I'm you know, it's it's a religious issue for me um, as a Christian, not wanting to support abortion. And so the Hyde Amendment has always been something that the Democrats and Republicans have been able to kind of say, well, we we can at least agree on that. For the Democrats this cycle to kind of, you know, peel that off and say, even that is too radical for us. We can't support the Hyde Amendment. And for Joe Biden as the front runner to say immediately that he was brought alongside by uh, (laughs) Alyssa Milano, I mean, I'm just I'm wondering Mm -hmm. how do they flesh that out on television in front of all of America during this debate? Uh, It's it's a great thought and a good question. We saw, you know, Joe Biden reverse his decades old stance on the Hyde Amendment and and has suddenly fully embraced unlimited taxpayer funding of abortion. And it's kind of wild when you step back and start to think about just how far left some of these some of these people are, are shifting. Um, and I think that there's also a really interesting dichotomy between um, candidates like Joe Biden or, you know, Bernie Sanders that have been, a, been in the political limelight, been in the spotlight for a little while, that have um, that have kind of a, a history of voting a certain way or believing in a certain thing. And then nowadays with kind of these newcomers in the race, whether it's your Kamala Harris or your Pete Buttigieg or your, uh, your Cory Booker, they're kind of forcing these candidates that have been around for a little while to reevaluate their long-term stances on things that, to your point, used to be very kind of mainstream, you know, or very kind of common sense. Um, and, and they're suddenly being pushed out of the, the you know, the common sense box and then this extremist box. And so there's also a part of me that's interested to see when you have some of the kind of new political blood, so to speak, um, on stage with some of the, the old-time, old-timey contenders like the Joe Bidens, how does that play out? And, and what do we start to, to learn about some of these candidates in the, in the direction in which they're being pushed um, with regard to the Hyde Amendment or with, with other policies, too, um, in terms of environmentalism or, or health care, et cetera, et cetera. But I just think the dynamic of having all of these people on the stage, you know, over two nights having all these people on a stage where they're really forced to debate with one another and to present themselves as why they are better than someone else is going to really stretch them. And I'm really interested to see who they end up all gunning for, because I think that to me shows who they already are seeing as the biggest threat. So when when we talk about the all of the different issues, that, and I haven't heard any workable policy proposals from them, I have, on the other end, heard a really nice, just a kind of bevy of ideas coming from the president, everything from finally fixing you know, the, the ridiculousness of Obamacare, um, completing the agenda on immigration reform, more movement on the jobs agenda, which has been very successful thus far, but even reaching down into areas where no Democrat president has ever said, let's work with ex-felons and make sure they can take part in this economy. Let's 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 reach into people who've been incarcerated, right. you know, for longer periods than are necessary. I just think it's been such an amazing 
uh, journey so far to watch the president capitalize on on the things he was able to get done, like the tax reform package, and to even move forward with those things, the judges, the appointment of the judges. It's just been really great to see. Um, and he does have a actionable agenda moving forward for the 2020 race. I don't see that from the Democrats. Truly, no, you don't at all. And I think that's one of the key differences right now between, you know, just Democrats, period, and President Trump. It's that there's no vision. Democrats have, have yet to put forth um, any kind of vision, any kind of plan, any kind of concrete policy that they want to see enacted, um, aside from their just general, you know, willingness to obstruct and resist the president at every turn um, and, and pedal forward, you know, baseless investigations for the next two years. They don't have an agenda. And I think what we're seeing on, on our side is that when we're crisscrossing the country and, and we're talking to voters, um, one of the things they love the most about this president is that he is so results-oriented and he's very results-driven. And he's somebody that had a long laundry list of ideas and things he wanted to accomplish back in 2015, 2016, many of which were laughed at by outsiders saying, there's no way this guy's going to be able to come in D.C. and do all of this stuff. And he did. He came with a vision, and he's knocked them all out. I mean, we've seen his work with the judiciary appointing two Supreme Court justices. We've seen his efforts with immigration and building a wall. We've seen his efforts with tax reform on the economy. This is somebody that had a clear vision, and Americans respond well to that. And that is something that Democrats are going to have to wake up to. And I'm fine if they don't. <laughs> but that is something that Democrats are going to have to wake up to. Democrats, the American people want results, and that's what they're getting with President Trump. That's what they're getting with Republicans in Congress. I love it. I love it. I, I think you just articulated that and, in, in, you know, it's very clear that one side has proposals that there may not be as, you know, like movie star glamorous, but they're workable. So that it's something that can actually happen. And the other right. side has right. things that they, they sound unicorn fantastic. They sound like cotton candy and rainbows and, you know, right. riding on my little ponies. It sounds fun. But it can't work. And so, you know, grownups in the room are like, well, I'll take the, you know, I'll take this, the straight glass of water because I need water to live. The other stuff looks great, but it might kill me. We've got a clear choice right. to make. And, and I'm just so excited that we get to have you come on and um, kind of expand on all of this and kind of point to what's going to be a really fun night tonight. Blair Ellis, RNC National Press Secretary. Thank you for your time today. Thanks for having me on, Stacey. All right. Talk to you again soon. Um, so we can take calls next segment. Um, we have call lines open at 866-963-2037. And I will be back to wrap up with all of this information. Uh, State Department identifying 30 security incidents with the Clinton email probe. You'll hear that audio coming in from the break. Stay right there. She was a baby girl left abandoned on a doorstep in China. Our friends met her in that orphanage that had saved her life, and they adopted her. And believe me, she's not an orphan anymore. There are a lot of folks who have felt orphaned for much of their lives, either left behind or left alone. Maybe you know the feeling. Well, just like that little girl, someone went a long way to get you. Someone who chose you. He's adopted a lot of spiritual orphans into his family, and he's ready to adopt you too. Jesus said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. We've been cut off from the Heavenly Father by choosing to run a life that He was supposed to run, so we feel spiritually fatherless. 
But God's Son came all the way from heaven to that awful cross to pay for your sins and give you the chance to be His. You can belong to Him by saying, Jesus, I'm yours. It's something we'd love to help you do. Call us at 888-NEED-HIM or go to chataboutjesus.com. You will never feel orphaned again. Hi, this is Jim Stanley, General Manager of American Family Radio, here to tell you that change is on the air. Uh, Excuse me, Jim, I believe the saying would be changes in the air. Well, that's true, too. We've got some big changes coming up, and you'll hear them on the air. Oh, right, boss. Go ahead. As I was saying, changes are coming, and you'll hear them on the air beginning Monday, June 24th, here on American Family Radio. So, do they affect me? I mean, are we cool here? I mean, we're cool, right? Hi, friends. There's a new show in town on Urban Family Talk, nightly, 7 p.m. Central. Join me, C.L. Bryant, as we build the bridge to conversation throughout our great nation, the greatest nation on the face of the planet, the greatest success story the world has ever known. Nightly, the C.L. Bryant Show over Urban Family Talk, 7 p.m. It's Fox Wheels. Tesla CEO Elon Musk says the company's upcoming electric pickup could be better than a Ford F-150, with a target towing rating of over 13,000 pounds, which is the top rating for an F-150. Equipped with a turbocharged V6, Musk also promising sci-fi styling and adjustable suspension with a range of over 400 miles per charge and a price that starts below $50,000 when Tesla's truck goes on sale, possibly in 2021. Massachusetts custom car body outfit Smith Performance unveiling a conversion kit to turn a VW New Beetle into a pickup. The Ute Kit, as they're called, a price tag of about three grand. The company also makes truck kits for the Audi A4, Hemi Chargers, VW Jettas, and Golfs. It says it's Beetle Truck Kit, already sold out on pre-orders. That's Fox Wheels. I'm Jeff Manasso, Fox News. This is Stacy on the Right with Stacy Washington on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. The State Department says it has found at least 15 people responsible for breaking government rules connected to the private emails of former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. The department publicly released a review Monday, which flagged 23 violations and seven infractions made by current and former employees who were involved in Clinton's private email network. The names of the employees who committed security violations have not been released, and the department says the number of infractions may increase as the investigation continues. Clinton came under heavy scrutiny during the 2016 election after her use of a private email server raised concerns over national security. The review comes a month after FBI documents revealed Clinton's top aides exchanged emails about suspected attempts to hack their networks. Reports say a potential breach could have been devastating to national security, as agents found thousands of emails containing government secrets and at least eight messages containing top-secret information. Wow. So that's reporting from One America News Now on the State Department identifying 30 security incidents in the Clinton email probe. Now, this was, look, I'm one of those people where I like to see justice and I, I really, I feel like we have to have an allegiance to seeing justice done. I also believe in mercy and I also think sometimes you just say, okay, we know what happened and we move on in the interests of 
you know, keeping everything going, uh, you know, instead of being having everything be derailed and just, you know, having a continual obsession with something. But this, on the other hand, is just it's just too much. It's just. Again, people have gone to jail. How does Hillary still get to be roaming around? It ain't cool. I, I, I can accept that some people don't have the same, like we all know that justice is not blind as much as we want it to be. But wow, this is just some crazy drama, crazy drama. Um, so exciting to chat with our guests today. It's been such a blessing to have John Davidson and Blair Ellis on the show. Um, I love when we have our, we just, we get to interview great people every day here and it's such a blessing. Um, I also want to thank all of our listeners in terrestrial radio land. If you're listening to this show on uh, any kind of terrestrial radio or, you know, you're live streaming us at AFR.net or UrbanFamilyTalk.com, such a blessing. Thank you for doing that Um, and for supporting American Family Radio, American Family Association, and all the ministries that we have here. We appreciate you. Um, So tonight is the announcement, and that's going to be awesome. Um, That is going to be one really hot rally. It's going to be fun. Um, and then for the Democrats first debate, mm, that sounds like that's going to be fun too. Don't you feel like you should maybe just have a few of your politically minded friends over throw out some more d'oeuvres on the coffee table or the ottoman and just sit and enjoy your lives and yeah, watch the train wreck. That is the debate. <laughs> I do. I feel like that's what I need to do. Just saying. <laughs> so we'll see. Um, so I mentioned this yesterday's two, two stories. Well, first, let's get to Justice Thomas. Justice Clarence Thomas believes it's time the Supreme Court moves to overturn demonstrably erroneous his his words. Uh, he says, quote, when faced with a demonstrably erroneous precedent, my rule is simple. We should not follow it. He wrote this in a concurring opinion in a double jeopardy case decided on Monday. The dual sovereignty doctrine, which pertains to a person facing both state and federal charges for the same offense, was at issue in the decision by the court, which ruled not to overturn the ruling in the case where an Alabama man, uh, the case of an Alabama man in Gamble v. United States. The use of the stare decisis doctrine, according to Thomas, should be revisited by the high court, saying it elevates demonstrably erroneous decisions meaning decisions outside the realm of permissible interpretation over the text of the Constitution and other duly enacted federal law. Again, quote, by applying demonstrably erroneous precedent ahead of the relevant law's text, as the court is particularly prone to do when expanding federal power or crafting new individual rights, the court exercises force and will to attributes the people did not give it. According to Thomas, justices should be using mere judgment by following the correct original meaning of the laws we are charged with applying. Ruling that the Fifth Amendment's double jeopardy clause was not being violated, the Supreme Court decision Monday dealt with the case of an Alabama man who was convicted of a state gun possession charge after pleading guilty. He was then indicted in the federal court for the exact same charge after pleading guilty again only to appeal the decision later on the grounds that it was a violation of double jeopardy. So Justice Samuel Alito wrote, although the dual sovereignty rule is often dubbed an exception to the double jeopardy right, it's not an exception at all. On the contrary, it follows from the text that defines that right in the first place. An offense is defined by law and each law is defined by a sovereign. 
Alito further wrote, explaining that multiple prosecutions for the same offense are banned under the double jeopardy clause, but adding that there, where there are two sovereigns, there are two laws and thus two offenses. The ruling could potentially affect the case against former Trump campaign manager Paul Manafort. And, it, and what I find funny, and it's complex, but it's funny to me, funny, ironic, about this case is that because Paul Manafort could be impacted by this case, Democrats are automatically on the side of double prosecutions. But were this to be Kevin Spacey or Ben Affleck or some darling of the left, you know, Bill Maher, some, someone they love, then they would immediately say that the Supreme Court was acting outside of what the Constitution permits. Do you see how that is? So really, it's not that you believe in the Constitution or you believe in what these Supreme Court justices are saying because of stare decisis. It's conditional. You basically look at the person who's being impacted. And if you like them, then you want the ruling to go for them. And if you hate them because they're a Republican and they must be hated with the hate of a thousand sons, you must pour out your hate upon them. You must drive their women and children before you in defeat. You must be angry at them at all times. You must never let them eat or pump gas in peace. These people must be routed. They must be run out. They're immoral. They're bigoted. They're phobic of everything good and holy. They must be destroyed. And therefore, instead of taking rules and laws and saying, I agree with this law, I disagree with this law, you say, who's up? Who, who does this lie impact? Oh, Paul Manafort? Well, we hate him because he's with Donald Trump. So we like this double jeopardy. We like the Constitution being flouted and the Supreme Court finding that there are two separate sovereigns. When we know in other cases, and I, I'm not a lawyer and I don't play one on TV, but we know in other cases the Supreme Court has found that the federal jurisdiction trumps the state jurisdiction. The Constitution actually outlines it. In cases where federal law and state law disagree, federal law supersedes. Accordingly, it would seem that if you've already been tried in state court, unless the federal court is going to vacate that decision, they would not try you on exactly the same charge. But apparently, they will be able to do so. And liberals will sit back and they'll rub their hands together gleefully because they got Paul Manafort. Now he's going to go down. He's going to go down for twice as much time and whatever time he doesn't spend in state and local, the feds will get him. And so they'll feel satisfied until as justices so often want to do the shoe is on the other foot. And it's some Democrat getting zealously prosecuted by state and local authorities and the federal government. And then they'll be back at the wailing wall and they'll have the ACLU bring this case back up and they'll say, this is a clear case of needing to overturn a incorrect ruling by the Supreme Court of the United States. You know how quick they are to say the Supreme Court can be wrong if the Supreme Court goes against what they want. Fascinating that Justice Thomas would delineate this in this way. He's so reticent to to speak out on some of these issues. And so, you know, well, there it is. Um, okay. So I also mentioned, and this is pretty interesting, you know, the solar panel folks, the people who believe in the green energy, the AOCs of the world, you know, uh, empty headed nincompoops they may be, but there they are. They always talk about solar panels and wind turbines being the future. 
and how if we could just get wind and solar everywhere, we wouldn't need that dastardly, mean, coal-fired electricity anymore. Well, it turns out that solar panels and wind turbines are actually making electricity significantly more expensive for all of us. This is the conclusion of a major new study by a team of economists at the University of Chicago. Renewable portfolio standards significantly increase average retail electricity prices with increases of 11%. That's 1.3 cents per kilowatt hour for, the, for my engineers and, and you know, uh, number crunchers out there. Seven years after the, the policy's passage into law and 17 cents or 17%, I'm sorry. So renewable portfolio standards significantly increase average retail electricity prices by 11% seven years after passage and 17% 12 years after passage. Now these are economists who wrote this. The study, which has yet to go through peer review, was done by Michael Greenstone, Richard McDowell, and Ishan Nath. It compares states with and without an RPS. It did so using what the economists say is the most comprehensive state-level data set ever compiled, which covered 1990 to 2015. So the cost to consumers has been staggeringly high. All in all, seven years after passage, consumers in the 29 states have paid $125.2 billion more for electricity than they would have in the absence of the policy. So people are paying more for electricity and they're not getting anything extra. It's not like the people who pay more are getting supercharged electricity. It's not like they're getting anything extra or better than the rest of us who don't have an RPS and are paying less. They're just being made to pay more because of bureaucrats. Bureaucrats who honestly are never held accountable for whenever their policies fail. Now, bureaucrats aren't even held accountable when they propose policies that are unworkable, like AOC, never made to explain how she's going to pay for all of these pie-in-the-sky unicorn policies. You know, if we could all ride My Little Ponies and just spend all day combing Barbie hair and watching television and singing songs, we would. If there was a way we could all do it and still have heating and cooling and food and money for educations and mortgage payments and, you know, purchase a car, you know, do whatever you need to do. If we could all just, you know, sniff unicorns and gaze at rainbows and just Medicare for all, free college for all, free K through 12 education for all, any immigrant from anywhere around the world, everybody, all 7 billion people living right here in America all of us having enough land and, and apartments and condo space and whatever we want, if we could just do all of that stuff and nobody was ever evil and nobody ever did anything wrong and nobody ever had to be brought to justice for, you know, breaking the law, no one ever killed anybody, if we could actually pull that off, why wouldn't we have already done that? Why wouldn't we have already done that, liberals? If we could just get those things done, by electing Democrats, why isn't California the utopian space for all of the universe? Why don't 7 billion people live in California under Democratic rule with everything they need and all the extra rainbows and My Little Ponies to boot? Oh, I'm sorry. Their state actually is at the bottom of the heap for education and economic metrics. There are more people dive bombing out of there than any other place in the United States. And we're supposed to adopt the policies that they're currently adopting for the rest of us. It's like AOC and her friends over on the Democratic side 
It's like they go find the worst thing in the world and they're like, let's make everybody have this. I mean, have you ever been around somebody like that where everything's going fine and you're living your life? Maybe you're on a committee or something and everything on the committee, I mean, it's not perfect, but you're doing okay. You know, things are working. Um, things are getting done. You have the occasional snafu, but it, you know, it's, you're working with people, you're fine with it. And then someone begins to suggest things. They want to make some changes. They've had some ideas. They've been stopped in the Walgreens or whatever by somebody who has ideas and they're passing those ideas on. And when you start to share them or they start to share them and you listen, you think to yourself, huh, this doesn't sound workable. Or someone who's been on the committee since day one says, we've already tried that. When we try notifying parents in that way, here are the breakdowns that occur. And so we stopped doing that four or five years ago because it just doesn't work. And then the person who's bringing these wrongheaded ideas begins to spout off about how new ideas aren't respected. They don't feel like they're a part of the group. They don't have to, you know, they're, they're, not, they're not allowed to just share. They want their ideas to be respected. You know, all that stuff, emotional rhetoric. And so a bunch of people on the committee who are easily swayed by emotions begin to say, you know what, They're, you're right. We should give her ideas a try. And so in spite of the learned opinions of those who've been there for a while and have seen this kind of proposal not work before, the committee decides to go forward with it. And then when mayhem ensues, they want to blame, you guessed it, the person who was there the whole time who said, we shouldn't do this. What I have just described to you is a microcosm of what the left does every single day. How they're able to get votes for their nincompoopery is beyond me. So a few seconds ago, I said sniffing the uh, sniffing the unicorns. I meant to say riding them. Joe Biden infecting the brain, guys. Joe Biden is the one who sniffs the hair of the people and probably the unicorns. All right. That's the show. I'm out of here until tomorrow. God bless you. Stacey Washington, StaceyOnTheRight.com. <laughs>